everybody, and for those who don't know me, I'm Jenny Hislop. I'm the uh, module coordinator on the Cognitive Research Methods course, which is part of the MSc in Evidence-Based um, Healthcare at Oxford. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our guest speaker tonight, uh, Axel Schura. I hope I've got that sort of right. Um, who is Professor of Sociology at Norwegian University of Science and Technology. And we're very lucky in the Health Experiences Research Group here, or her, because Axel's doing some work with us over uh, 12 months, is it, Axel? But you're doing work with us, and so it's great to have him on board. I'm really fascinated in his topic tonight, the point of qualitative research, because if there isn't any point, then we're all here for nothing on false pretenses, and, and I'm, I'm out of a job. So I'm going to hand over to Axel and, uh, and, and hear all about it, I guess. Thank you very much. Um, if it's all about it, I'm not sure, but at least uh, hopefully uh, some valuable input. And I, um, I will kind of stick more or less to a manuscript uh, for, this, uh, for this evening. And uh, you are welcome to have the manuscript afterwards if, if it's anything of value in it. I will use some slides as well. The slides are not filled with stuff. They are more like uh, something to look at. Uh, so, um, the, the topic, the point of qualitative research. And qualitative research has received great acceptance uh, in a great variety of disciplines, including health and medicine. Still, I think there is reason to admit that the true potential qualitative research or qualitative analysis seems not to have been realized, uh, realized in such areas, and not in other areas as well. Uh, like within my own discipline of sociology and in the social sciences more broadly. So in this lecture, uh, before the dinner, after a long day, I will, will not bother you with this philosophical exploration of where the potential qualitative analysis lies, where it supposedly get lost or got lost, and whose fault that is. Rather, I will apply uh, two examples from research performed by my colleagues and myself to throw some light on what kind of questions are best answered by the qualitative studies. And uh, not at least how results or findings from qualitative studies may look like. The title of the talk, The Point of Qualitative Research, has a double meaning. Addressing the point of doing qualitative research, as well as uh, the point of departure for qualitative research. Um, First, let me admit that I think those of us who specialize in quality research, who develop methods, who teach and supervise, who research qualitatively in various ways, are those responsible for strengthening the quality, relevance, and impacts of a qualitative analysis. The regularly repeated critique of quality research for generating and presenting anecdotal evidence uh, is often quite fair. My point of departure for responding to this critique is to work out transparent, systematic and ambitious routes to follow for the qualitative researcher, which is also comprehensible, I hope, for the novice reader and user of qualitative research. For this ambition, I have developed what I call a stepwise deductive inductive method for qualitative research, to which I will return at the end of the talk. Because now uh, to the two examples. The first one deals with the familiar everyday situation of using text messaging on mobile phones. 
and the other deals with health issues that may, uh, to, may be more familiar to many of you uh, professionally, at least. The first study um, was initiated by my curiosity of how text messaging changes how we communicate and especially how communication and physical space interact. I got the idea for the project on basis of an incident happening in a pub in my home city of Trondheim in 2006, a period of which I was single and enjoying nightlife quite regularly. I got a text message, an SMS, uh, from someone, a female, whom I just mo a moment earlier had observed in the same pub. And it occurred to me that the rather intimate invitation could not have been uttered face to face, and that this very elegant use of SMS both reduced embarrassment and avoided interruption uh, of the ongoing chats in the pub. As a sociologist interested in social interaction, I was immediately intrigued by the potential study of this phenomenon. And let me admit, I was intrigued by the SMS invitation itself uh, in the first place. But using SMS between people in the same spot was something new for me. I called it SPS SMS, Shared Physical Space SMS. Especially a few days later, when I checked the prevalence of such experiences with a large group of sociology introductory course students, finding that two-thirds of the students had experienced this use of SMS. Remember, this was in 2006, with the huge popularity of SMS before Wi-Fi and social media on 3G and 4G took off. Early next year, I invited students who then had completed my course to participate in the study on the basis that they had experienced SPS SMS. 18 students between 19 and 26 years volunteered as participants. Ideally, observ observing this phenomenon would be fantastic, but since part of the nature of the phenomenon in itself is its discreteness, that was impossible. The option was to use depth interviews and concentrate on the told experiences and accounts of SPS SMS. The interviews were kept very short and focusing on the topic for the study, lasting only between 7 and 23 minutes, and I was able to undertake all the 18 interviews during two days. The research question I addressed was quite simply one, how is SMS used for communication with other people in the same physical space? And two, which concepts may we as social researchers apply to make sense of this novel form of communication? Although many of the participants were not prepared for the level of detail that I needed to achieve empirical depth, they were each able to move from general viewpoints and typical episodes to personal experiences of actual situations during the short interviews. It is well rehearsed within qualitative research textbooks that interdate the results from the situated interaction between the participants and the researcher. In my case, on the basis of myself, persistently encouraging detailed accounts from concrete episodes. Detailed transcripts are necessary for next stage of coding into data, uh, by what I term empirically closed codes, maintaining the content of data as well as reducing volume. In the next stage, 
had categorized these codes and identified 10 different uses of SPS SMS. And these are flirting and dating, SMS hugging, warning and, and assisting friends, coordinating discreetly, asking about other people present, commenting on uh, commenting a situation as it unfolds, maintaining strategic collaboration, avoiding interruption, interrupting social settings, making practical jokes, and the last one, communicating during meetings. While the codes are named as specific episodes and experiences, these categories, as you see here, are more generic. And all the categories are inductively produced in the analysis, so we have no idea how many we will end up having. If we move to one of the categories, uh, the one uh, flirting and dating, uh, I will illustrate uh, the code, uh, one of the codes behind, behind such uh, a category. And it's um, uh, an episode described by Emma. Emma, she says, one of the boys at the nightcap party sent SMS to us, four girls at the same party, saying, Come over to my place afterwards. I'll say I'm leaving, but you can come over. And then he says, "Good, bye-bye, uh, see you tomorrow, to the whole bunch of people in public. The episode is coded as, come over to my place afterwards. And together with other codes of similar situations, grouped within the more generic term flirting and dating. Another category is, for example, that of friendly warnings and assistance, in which SPS SMS is used to discreetly ask for assistance. Uh, for instance, in the situation described by Eve, where a flirt is getting too intense. And she says, me and my friend were together at a nightcap party, and it was only a lot of friends, but one of the boys got a bit interested in my friend during the night, and then she sent me an SMS saying, help me, help, you know. And I was talking to some other people, but then I suddenly looked over to her and saw that this guy was leaning over her. And then it was easy to step in without she having to approach me. So then we used SMS to say something that we could not say out loud. While such categories like the 10 mentioned may be interesting and providing a nuanced insight into the theme of the study, they are not satisfactory as a result according to the SDI method that I work along. Moving to the next step, a more imaginative take is needed by which one or more concept should be suggested. Then if we look at the two examples, Emma's description of this guy getting rid of some potential rivals at this party and Eve explaining how her friend called discreetly for help, what do they have in common? what is happening in a more conceptual sense. Perhaps most importantly, that a new channel of, uh, of communication is initiated on the spot. Another distinct and additional communicative option is created. And my initial view of these options, option was the image of layers. So several layers of communication, or what I have termed communic communicative transparency layers, are created. After the discovery of this concept, I turned back to other categories to ask, is this concept relevant for all the categories? And yes, it's true for all of them, although in different ways and to varying degree. 
most importantly, the concept of communicative transparency layers draws the analysis towards a theoretical level. In the sociological sense, these perhaps rather mundane uses of SMS provide both a communicative and interactive shifts engendered in the accounts of these young people. First, that the mobile phone affords SPS SMS to facilitate a redefinition of social interaction. And second, how using SPS SMS may blur the distinction between private and public, public interaction. In discussing the concept, the celebrated American sociologist Irving Goffman and his dramaturgical metaphors backstage and frontstage become relevant. Goffman did his research mainly in the 1950s and 60s, long before the vast development of mediated communication. But his ideas and concepts have nevertheless maintained their position within interactionist sociology. D despite the empirical limitation of SPS SMS study, by detailed coding, categorizing, and concept development, the study contributes to a timely and relevant critique of Goffman's dramaturgical metaphor. SPS SMS interaction may represent a virtual backstage between SPS SMS communicators, which is physically within a more inclusive front stage setting. But then, in fact, the dramaturgical metaphor breaks down and may be replaced or at least supplemented by the metaphor of layers. Although SPS-SMS must be regarded as an extraordinary case of communication, the phenomenon may be of interest within interactionist sociology because first, it challenges the notion that participation in conversation can be based on time and space alone, and second, it opens up for considering new levels of teen col collaboration in uh, presentation of selves. So what was the result of the study? First, the most important finding was the identification of the concept of layers of communicative transparency. It represents the, what we will call conceptual generalization of the study and may be scrutinized by further studies of mediated communication, social media, and so on. By the concept, the contribution is not, not limited to a nerdy interest in the narrow phenomenon of SPS-SMS, but provides an alternative sociological framework for studying social interaction. So that is actually the result or the finding of the study. The other example is quite differently motivated as it was part of a PhD research project of Marianne Trondsen of the Arctic University in Tromsø in Norway, dealing with the exploration of an online self-help group for adolescents aged 15 to 18 with a mentally ill parent. The study was action-driven and set out to study the impact of such a self-help group, both by setting up and recruiting participants to the web-based forum by observing interaction in the group, as well as depth interviewing participants. Children and adolescents with a, parent with a mental illness are more likely to experience social isolation, additional caregiving responsibilities, financial hardship and disruptions because of unpredictable illness-related parental behavior. 
The part of the project that I will refer to in this talk draws on in-depth interviews with the group participants, in which the meaning of the online self-help group in adolescents' actual lives is explored. That is, we were interested in how the online participation had impact on the everyday offline life. Similar to the first example, interviews were also in this project analyzed by detailed coding and categorization through an inductive approach in which specific issues, events or processes are identified across the participants. Our aim was to identify the roles of the online self-help group in supporting adolescents in managing everyday life with a mentally ill parent. During our categorization of the coded interview data, we identified three types uh, of social processes that evolve through communication within the online self-help group. Recognizability, that is recognizing each other's similar experiences. Two, openness, discussing issues that had been kept secret. And three, agency, retaining independent active steps towards plans and ambitions. In the first example, uh, the SMS article, we identified 10 different uses of SPS SMS. And the three different uh, social processes identified here is at the same analytical level as those 10 uses. Let me give some insight into the experiences of the adolescents, which led us to these three categories. Participant told us that before joining the group, they had a sense of being the only one in the world with a mentally ill parent, and most had never met others in a similar family situation. Being part of the forum, facilitating sharing stories with online peers in contrast to other friends, because participants in the forum generally could understand the others' experiences. As one of them told us, there were some people who understood it, who read it, you don't get that with the friends who have grown up with healthy parents. They can't really put themselves in your situation the way someone who has been there can. Another participant talked about her friends easily chatting and laughing lightly about boys, clothes, music and movies, while she was paralyzed by heavy worries about her mentally ill mother and incapable of engaging in the conversations. Reading in the forum about others' similar experiences allowed her to be calmer and to stop worrying so much about not being normal. Accounts such as the above gave us the idea of the category recognizability. Further, David talking about experiencing silence and lack of information about the illness and its consequences from parents, relatives, other adults or health professionals who knew about the parents' illness. Moreover, the participants kept the parents' illness secret from friends, or at least very seldom told anyone about the experiences and emotions in detail. As one of the participants said during an interview, often it really feels wonderful because there are some things you have actually wanted to say for a long time but there has never been anyone you feel you can tell or the right moment to say it. It's just a relief to get it off your shoulders. Feeling anger towards ill parents made everything just worse as another participant, uh, participant noted. I had a guilty conscience 
because I was feeling sad and angry about all the stuff with mum. To read that they had the same feelings as me, anger, sadness and so on, was good. Because when I felt as angry as hell, I felt at the same time that I wasn't allowed to be angry. And we have identified such accounts as dealing with the issue of openness. One participant explained that knowledge obtained from self-help group, self-help group motivated her to manage the consequences of her mother's mental illness. She said, I understood more about what an illness like that involves and I saw how the others handled things. I understood then that it is possible to cope with matters instead of just suppressing them. Another participant put it like this. It's not as though everyone who is having a terrible time will go and kill themselves. They manage well in spite of it. And it's a burden they have, but they live normal lives all the same. And they are strong and resourceful people. That really does motivate you. One of the participants told us that the indications of normality she could find in the other stories were valuable sources for her own sense of hope or living an ordinary life in the future. For instance, she mentioned that because one of the other participants had the boyfriend, she felt that she would have the chance to get the boyfriend, friends and live a completely normal life. Another participant told us that she, through the forum, understood that her problems didn't have anything to do with herself and that it became a very important part of making po it possible for her to dare to talk to her ill mother and get it cleared up and have a better relationship with her. We have grouped the latter accounts under the analytical category of agency, that is retaining independent active steps towards plans and ambitions. But still we have only identified categories of social processes related to applying the internet self form. Once again, we need to search for a more generic concept that cover essential features of the development that these adolescents experience through participating in the web forum. The participant experience out of the ordinary lives related to stigmatizing situations, which leaves them alone with the difficulties. Participating in the forum, however, helped them redefining what is experienced and perceived as, no ab as abnormal, as being normal for members in this specific community. Observing this transfer from abnormal to normal and that this transformation is related to the communication community that is being established in the forum, hints towards the concept of communal normalization, by which a sense of normality is developed communally through the act of communication. By providing a space for participants to, explicit, to be explicit about difficult emotions and out of the ordinary experiences, to recognize them based on the participants' own experiences and to accept frustration and anger, the forum provided an arena for openness in emotions and reactions that the participants withheld in other social situations. The participants created an arena for communal normalization in which they extended agency based on peer support and recognition 
resulting in lower threshold to talk to family, friends and professionals about their situations. The adolescents also took a more active role in managing the everyday lives with a mentally ill parent. Based on rec uh, recognition and openness, the participants' agency is shaped, reshaped and extended, enabling novel strategies to manage everyday life, although surrounded by challenges uh, of mental illness. Our findings support previous studies uh, of people's use of the internet as <coughs> contingent on particular needs and conditions in their everyday lives. But our main contribution is detailing social processes between the online and the offline <coughs> and identifying a way of addressing such processes by potentially new concepts if necessary. There's nothing in our study that points to communal normalization as something that will occur in all support forums. However, our study has a more general uh, application demonstrating that the potential of web-based interaction to assist people risking stigma in experiencing the everyday life as less out of the ordinary and more normal. Communal normalization is the participant's sense of normalization, that is normalization for self, self-situation and self-identity, rather than about any change in the broader community. Therefore, although such a self-help forum does not challenge the fundamental structure of health services. It provides great potential or agency for certain individuals experiencing everyday lives on the margins of normality. Communal normalization as a concept developed through the study of adolescents with mentally ill parents may characterize generic process in which communication provides potential for increased recognizability, openness and agency across a group of individuals. We may expect similar processes both in physical and online groups and may also extend the concept by other processes than the three identified in our study. So moving back uh, to where we started, uh, what do these two examples tell us about the point of quality research and about the point of departure for qualitative research. The two illustrated projects started from very different motivating, uh, motivating forces. The first, an independent, non-funded curiosity with a novel use of mobile phones. And the second, a PhD research project externally funded to study the potential of web-based self-help groups for adolescents with mentally ill parents. But they sh share an important point of departure, a strong interest in exploring the details of experiences as interview data. The projects are both inductively oriented. They start with digging into the messy world of individual and social experiences and continue with detailed coding and categorization. They also share the analytical aim that endpoint reaching at the generic or conceptual level of knowledge. The concepts developed, layers of communicative transparency and communal normalization, do make sense also without an interest for SMS or adolescents with mentally ill parents. The concepts contribute to a wider understanding of mediated communication as layers 
and how some networks, networks of communication may, may strengthen individuals' ability to cope with different difficult life situations. As noted by one of the fathers of grounded theory, Barney Glaser, the concepts need to have an, what he calls an enduring grab. Once established, they never fade. In fact, it means that they are not depending on cases or samples on which they have been developed, but triggers some kind of analytic gaze that could be relevant for further studies. As mentioned in the beginning of this talk, I wanted to return to the issue of a framework titled Stepwise Deductive Induction, by which, uh, by which a mainly inductive method aims at concepts or theories. And with these concepts represent generalization, it is as conceptual generalization. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, for instance, in the two studies mentioned, generalization is developed through the concepts. This is very different from statistical generalization, where a sample is supposed to represent a population. Rather, this is generalization at a the more theoretical level, where concepts are supposed to capture generic processes or experiences identified through detailed qualitative exploration and analysis. While quantitative studies aims at identifying relations between independent and dependent variables, qualitative studies aims at identifying, identifying ways to understand processes and experiences. For such understanding to have value in addition to specific case knowledge, it needs to be generic. So here, uh, the SDI model. With strong concern in generating very detailed empirical data and treating data in a way that maintains detailed content throughout coding and categorization, the model is basically inductive. However, as illustrated here on the right side, each step has a feedback loop which is mainly a quality control to strengthen the model's reliability. For instance, as mentioned, testing preliminary concepts against those category we are here then against um, against those categories uh, that did not dire directly generate conceptual the conceptual ID is supposed to nuance and validate the concept. On the one hand, are they precise enough? On the other, are they too general? Both concepts generated through the two studies illustrated in this presentation are rather general and hence covering essential aspects of all the categories. They are obviously precise enough to survive through the review process towards publication, which is often the ultimate test. Precision may in other cases uh, be strengthened by only using a subset of categories when moving towards conceptualization stage. Looking closely at the SDI model, the coding and coding tests and so on, we demand an extra, at least a double lecture, so we'll leave that model for now. And uh, I know that you are going to work quite a lot with analysts uh, tomorrow, I think it is. Um, because most importantly, anyway, to develop the potential from qualitative studies, an ambition towards um, concepts and theories should be maintained. 
We find this in significant degree within the social science disciplines. But as quality research methods creep up on, for instance, health and medical sciences, as, as well as a vast range of interdisciplinary programs, we often find that ambition for analysis is more on a descriptive level. But sorting empirical extracts at worst, or categories at best, can never avoid being anecdotal, although systematically presented. The wider popularity of quality research is therefore not only a blessing for those of us concerned with the development and quality of such methods, but also an increasing challenge. challenge. I repeatedly rejected PhD theses within medicine and information sciences applying quality research designs, but with only a descriptive ambition. So to return to the suitable research question for quality research designs, what are they? <coughs> they often start with how or why and aim at understanding, not describing nor comparing. And as argued in uh, this talk, the way this understanding is developed and presented should aim at a generic analytic level. Qualitative analysis is a, is a most challenging task from an intellectual point of view, and there are no sh uh, crosscuts. Having said this, the systematic approach presented in the SDI method is supposed to help the researcher keeping track of an inductive development and reduce complexity by moving through separate steps. Now I'm, I'm coming to um, an end. Uh, what I try to do in this talk is to expand on how quality research should aim at a generic and some generic insight through concepts and conceptual generalization. You may see the talk as a warning against jumping into qualitative research, or you may see it as an inspiration for performing qualitative research that is more ambitious and less anecdotal. I guess it is meant to be both. And I finished this talk by um, showing you this nice evening impression of my sociology clinic in my hometown Trondheim. This is where we do sociology in downtown Trondheim. Thank you. And I think there are there is some time for questions and comments if you do have. I mean, there is. Uh, I think the <laughs> at least the start of the answer is it, it's probably there is a cr crash of disciplines. Uh, there is a crash of let's say health medicine. Uh, disciplines in which you do have a uh, standard strategy of presenting a systematic overview of findings or empirical insight. Uh, if you look at uh, the way, uh, let's say, quantitative studies are presented, it's usually uh, a, a large presentation of results and then perhaps a short speculative end discussion. Um, and I mean, because these hypothetic deduct deductive strategies doesn't actually produce any theory, it could test theories or test concepts, but, but not the other, uh, other way around. Uh, and then when you, when you move that way to think about uh, presenting research and publishing and doing research into quality studies, you end up with, with these purely descriptive 
qualitative studies. And we do see those published in a lot of uh, journals, uh, in, for instance, in different health sciences and medicine, but also in a lot of uh, interdisciplinary journals as well. The, the, the challenge, as I see it, is that if you're a social researcher, a sociologist, uh, uh, of, of some kind, social anthropologist, uh, working together with, let's say, people in the medical sciences, uh, and you end up uh, having uh, or, uh, the chance only to publish these descriptive analyses, you aren't challenged within your own discipline, so to speak. So that's, and I've been working quite a lot with, uh, with people in the medical, medical sciences especially, and um, it becomes, at least my experience was coming to a point uh, where I got really frustrated because uh, actually we ended up with publishing things that I thought lacked a chapter in a way. Uh, and that, that was for me the most important chapter or the most important section, the, this discussion section where more or less everything theoretical happens. Um, and so uh, how to solve that problem? Well, my uh, way to solve it was to uh, kind of look after myself that I actually had some time to write my own articles or to bring in some other social science people uh, and actually uh, not let all the group uh, write all the articles in a way. So that we, so now when we work in, in these interdisciplinary group, we try to make a pure, purely sociological article, for example, in the project to, to maintain this uh, concept development as part of the project. Although that's only one of four articles, at least we, we have we have produced uh, sociology and not only descriptive analysis. I'm not sure if that was an answer of the, of the question, but, but, but I think it's, it's, it's our responsibility then to, uh, to, to um, kind of go back to the team and say, well, now we wrote this small conceptual article. Take a look at it, please, and let, let us discuss, isn't it something that we could um, perhaps also uh, include towards, let's say, the interdisciplinary group. I think they would, because that was the idea of the talk, the point of quality. Well, the point is perhaps this conceptual development. And uh, if we are able to kind of challenge also people from the medical sciences, health sciences, and the interdisciplinary programs and so on, that what is, we need to take a step further than, than only the descriptive, putting out the cat categories or the themes. Uh, it, it's hard work, I know. I've given up many times, uh, but but it's kind of a ideal <laughs> if you if you work for a, let's say a few uh, a few years with, with with the same group. So taking the responsibility to educating people uh, how we could make use of uh, qualitative analysis in a let's say a bit more advanced level. That's a very good question. We did uh, two years back. Uh, we found out that we would like to apply sociology very practically in, into municipal uh, planning, uh, uh, evaluation projects, and so on. And we also uh, saw that kind of being within the university, 
this ivory tower kind of thing. It's not ivory, not not that, not, not exactly a tower uh, like in Oxford, but um, which you do have the towers, um, but but very protected in a way. So what we did was to. I got a group of students and PhD candidates and some of my colleagues down in the city and we established this kind of sociology shop. Uh, it used to be a hairdresser's and we kind of rebuilt it. Uh, and uh, what is happening that people actually come to us because they think they need some sociological treatment. Uh, so um, the name is Sociologist Polyclinic, which is on the top of it means actually sociological outpatient clinic uh, and the so and it worked really well so what we do a lot of uh, work together with the municipality with a lot of architects city planners uh, we have had some evaluation projects which is more kind of standard contract research really but what we do is that we we have events book launches uh, and, and so on so so actually it's bringing sociology to the people <laughs> And it's uh, it's a, it's a kind of a voluntary work, but it's also a, it's a kind of separate enterprise. But but more and now in in we're moving towards the festival season. Now we do have also these uh, a camper van uh, that we use. So uh, also with the name uh, the sociology clinic, and we use that in different um, different um, festivals to study. Uh, the community that is developed in the festivals and this summer we, do, we also have a uh, collaboration with uh, uh, with a health institute in Norway uh, to study the way uh, different alcohol and other uh, uh, what do you call it um, like uh, smoking hashes and things like that are used in festivals so we do have a both health aspect and now we do have a kind of community aspect of it so that, that's what we do. We, we, we bring sociology into, into social situations, like the festival, like the streets, and so on. So that, that's more or less what it is. Um, they should How was that funded, actually? Well, I uh, st started funding it from my own pocket um, because I had so, str so, so strong beliefs in it that I had, was quite certain that we will be able to to pay that back with projects, so, no, so when we when we do and, and that happens. So when we do project with the municipality, we we do actually one project with one of the large property owners as well to develop an an area in the city. Then so so we do have this contract that actually make us able to pay the the, the rent and, and that kind of stuff. So it's paid with all these projects. And also it, it, it brings uh, students and these PhD candidates in the midst of society in the city in, in, in kind of different situations, problems and, and so on. Uh, so it, it becomes a very practical sociology in a way. Uh, but it just started uh, a bit less than two years ago, and, uh, but it's starting to work quite well. And I, I think it, for us it's been quite important that actually people discover that this place exists and they, by discovering it they also start to discover what sociology is so that that's I think that's important as well because no one have an idea what it is some believe it's some kind of social work and uh, but that's more or less the closest that piece <laughs> that people come I think uh, so it's kind of promoting what 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 it is and what we could do and giving the idea to 
the students as well, what they could, and in, in what ways they could apply sociology, starting to work, and so on. Different every time, and it's a really good question because that's that's the most I guess most challenging part of it, because then um, you have to rely on creativity, ideas, visualization, but then again you don't have to work alone. So I quite often work together with, uh, with other people, with my colleagues, with my students, and so on. What, what is this? What, what, what does, does this look like in your head? What, if you imagine what it is, what is it? Um, so it's, um, and also it's, it's playing with terms and words and so on. So it's, uh, and, and it's, it's probably the most demanding part of the project. So it's a good question, but, uh, and I'm trying to get to point to can to be able to say what it is how to do it, but it's quite hard to do it, ex except from using ex examples. But I agree with you; the examples doesn't give you the standardized answer how to do it. But I think uh, to play with words and and, and so on. Um, uh, Irving Goffman that I mentioned was really good at using metaphors, and that that's that's another way to uh, to, to do it. Um, I mean, that would be perfect if it fits with the concept already existing, because then it means that you would kind of rely it uh, related to the research already being published. And uh, also, it, it, uh, because I, I think that's the way research needs to be done. Also, these, uh, um, I'm keen on having my students my, and my colleagues testing these concepts as well, because that needs to be done. To, to validate or perhaps trans, transform ideas and so on. So that would be just perfect. I mean, it means that you are kind of, and it also is if, um, if you find yourself, uh, let's say, um, identifying a phenomenon being published of, from, uh, of someone in, in an article, contact those people because uh, you could, you, I mean, you could read articles, but don't, don't hesitate to contact people that presented something that 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 kind of um, uh, kind of responds in some way to your your own analysis. People are usually very happy to have that kind of questions. Make it transparent. So uh, so that's why we also when we when we use coding we usually work with hyper research. Some work with NVivo. There's a lot of different software to do that kind of thing. The good thing with working with software is it's, it's quite easy to show afterwards exactly these stages, uh, what kind of codes did you develop, uh, how do the codes feed into categories, exactly what codes did feed into some categories, m making some examples for instance. And then it, it, it's much easier for a, for a reader to understand, okay, what's going on? And then to back to your other question, when we come to the concept, well, that, that's more like 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 a playful thing that's not that necessary to uh, to have a specific system for, but but anyway, uh, to show the way you organize towards some more generic uh, concepts, you you need to do that and and invite people into understanding what is happening. It's it's not a magic thing. It's actually systematic work. So, and we need to show that. All the time. Also, I uh, um, I work. Uh, we work in group. Uh, that's that's what what we do in uh, in the, the clinic quite much. We work in groups. And for instance, when we do coding, 
we we often start uh, with coding on a large uh, on a kind of a large uh, having a screen uh, um, a projector, and then we start coding in a group of five, six, seven, seven people, and then we start coding interviews. For instance, uh, code, coding one or two, three interviews uh, before we may we may split the work or leave that responsibility to one or two, so that we kind of. Uh, we try to maintain this learning process all the time in every project that, that, we, uh, that we work together. And that, that's another thing with working with software. It, it's easier to work together if, if we sit in front of a computer or using a projector. So that's, that's, that's I mean, I and my students, uh, that's quite often the fun part of the project. And if you sit alone all the time, it's not the fun part of the project. So it's really, really important to have fun in these difficult parts. So um, find good colleagues, students, and other people that, uh, when we work in teams and projects, that's kind of self-evident. But quite often, you're kind of asked to do that job individually, which is it's not the most effective all the time. <laughs>